Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, our good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow uh, at the uh, Center for a New American Security. He's also one uh, of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military drones, as well as the Russian military's drones. Sam, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again and again, Vago. Indeed, indeed. it wouldn't be Monday unless uh, you were joining us. Before we get started, our program today is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technology partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Sam, always great uh, having you on. Thanks so much for joining us, especially uh, on this, uh, the first uh, anniversary uh, of Russia's illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine. Um, Hundreds of thousands of casualties uh, on both sides, many millions uh, displaced and indeed People are feeling this wherever they are in, in the world, whether through food insecurity, rising interest rates, or, or energy prices, what have you. Um, I want to get to the lessons uh, that the Russians in particular have drawn uh, from this. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, as a Russian analyst, what you made of Vladimir uh, Putin's address, right? It was the first one in two years that was sort of a State of the Union address. It fell in between President Biden's historic visit to Kiev uh, and his very powerful address uh, in, in Warsaw. Well, you know, as a Russia analyst, what was the takeaway from what Putin said that goes beyond sort of the new start and, and everything else? Well, it was in many ways a very predictable speech. He actually went over main points uh, that justified in his own mind why a Russian military has invaded Ukraine. And it was a speech mostly for the domestic consumption. He had to reassure the population that the military was doing the right thing, that it was actually doing well instead of doing badly, uh, that the state of the Russian Union um, is actually strong, to borrow a phrase from, uh, from another similar address done elsewhere, and that the Russian society and the country and the military are united in the same goal in countering the West, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, nothing really surprising and nothing really new in that particular speech. There was no earth-shattering statements made about capability or Ukraine or the war proper. Um, How, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about how this war has allowed Putin to remake Russia in his image, basically crack down. uh, Indeed, right, the higher the casualty counts get, uh, there is some polling uh, that suggests that Russians are being more supportive, that, you know, there's only state media, so people are buying the notion that, hey, we fight them and fight the Americans in Ukraine, otherwise they'll be marching uh, on on Moscow. you know, what, what's the sense of how the country and the society has changed in the last year uh, in particular? Well, we have to be wary of polls uh, right now coming out of uh, Russia. Obviously, we don't know how objective they are and how honest people are in responding to them. Earlier, when you and I spoke about uh, Russian societal support for the war, we discussed the fact that there's a significant segment of the Russian population which supports the government in general. And the government stance and the government policies, whether it's Putin in the, in the government or maybe somebody else, people would support the government because they want a sense, a real sense, or maybe a semblance of stability and security. And so um, 
a lot of people right now either support the war or are afraid to speak out against it. And most active opponents probably have already left. A lot of people voted with their feet and wallets. Last year, we discussed high-tech uh, immigration. Uh, we discussed immigration in general. Hundreds right. of thousands of very capable, smart, and bright individuals have left uh, Russia and have taken themselves out almost completely from uh, participation in the Russian economy. Not entirely, of course, because a lot of IT workers actually still work for the Russian companies, but they do it from abroad. But the fact is, a lot of people have left. And it isn't easy right now for people to speak up and against this war. And so there's a semblance in these official polls or in general that uh, Russian society and the Russian people mostly support what is going on. Uh, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more, right? When people cite what Russian polling is, you, you don't know. And Russians have a very uh, you know, well-honed ability to keep their head down. Uh, you know, when when they disagree. I mean, again, you know, the, the, there wasn't as much for the Soviet support for the Soviet regime as the Soviet regime would would have you uh, believe at the time. Um, speaking of Putin, uh, the Russian leader uh, put Yevgeny Prigozhin back in the box after the boss of the Wagner Group criticized the defense ministry, its leadership, and even Putin himself for not giving his forces the ammunition they need to succeed, which is why the fight was so difficult. Uh, now, uh, Ramzan Khatirov uh, is uh, looking to maybe launch his own private military uh, company. Walk us through what this trend means, uh, right? Because this is more than just a private military company. It's a squabble at the very top, effectively. In indeed. And uh, Wagner PMC isn't the only private military company in Russia. There are several smaller ones which are also operating uh, and it's interesting that Ramzan Kadyrov's announcement that he could potentially launch his own PMC to compete with Prigozhin's PMC was actually carried on Russian state media. It was actually published in Ria Novosti, one of the top three uh, state media publications. So obviously, this is a discussion at the highest levels. But again, um, much of the debate about Wagner centers and what is going on in Ukraine but Wagner's influence goes way beyond Ukraine, and it is a useful tool for the Russian state to operate in areas, areas where they don't want to operate officially or where they don't want to send their military. And so if Wagner's influence in Ukraine may be diminished or if Wagner's uh, leadership role may be somehow diminished, right, if Prigozhin is put back in the box, in a matter of speaking, it doesn't mean that Wagner is actually going to be dissolved or disbanded. But Ramzan Kadyrov's star has been rising. He also criticized the MOD along with Prigozhin's. But while Prigozhin was called to the red carpet and basically was told something behind closed doors, Ramzirov got a, a general star. He, he got basically a uh, military rank. Uh, and so right. because his fighters are also in Ukraine as well, um, I think this is a question more of to the Russian state, what is more important? Is it more important to placate a, uh, an outspoken head of the private military company that may be operating internationally, uh, but may have a limited influence at home? Or is it more important to placate someone who is a linchpin of stability in the Caucasus, in the Russian Caucasus, right? And people fear Ramzan Kadyrov has got his own uh, private military now, tens of thousands of fighters, well-trained, well-equipped. So what's more important for the state to be sort of, um, to be uh, on, a, on a better footing with, with Kadyrov or Prigozhin? But it doesn't mean that this pattern will, will continue, right? Uh, the star of Prigozhin was very high before. 
it kind of fell, it may rise again. Same can be said about Kadyrov. So this is right. the Russian state balancing the interests that have developed over the past year and interests that may have grown a little bit beyond what the state originally envisioned for these people when they started to participate and support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's talk about war uh, lessons. But before we get there, USAID package uh, included drones, uh, the package that the president unveiled. Why is uh, it significant? What are the kind of capabilities Ukraine is going to get from the United States? Well, uh, obviously, drones are extremely important right now. Uh, Ukraine needs more and more of these on a daily basis. Most of the drones both sides are using are rather expendable. They have a very short shelf life. And so the supplies of these very vital technologies have to be replenished continuously. And that's why United States is sending more Switchblade 600 drones. These are loading munitions which fly further and are heavier than the Switchblade 300. Um, and uh, Switchblade 600 is designed to attack hardened positions, possibly targeting Russian uh, headquarters or command and control centers. United States is also sending uh, Cyberlinks KB UAV, Altius uh, 600 UAV, not to be confused with Russia's Altius, which is uh, a long-range combat drone that Russians are still basically putting through the paces. And uh, United States is sending a, um, a Jump 20 VTOL UAV, which the Russians actually acknowledged as a very capable platform. Uh, this particular UAV was discussed widely on Russian telegram channels devoted to the use of drones and UAVs in Ukraine. So these are going to be additional capabilities for the Ukrainian military. We don't know their numbers. We actually never knew how many of these were delivered before, and we don't know the exact numbers. Uh, it is likely that Ukraine needs a lot, and it is likely that this UAV order is probably going to be in the many hundreds. Um, let me ask you, you know, when it comes to UAVs, there are a lot of folks who are saying, look, if we can't get uh, F-16s over there in combat air power, we have a whole bunch of MQ-9s, for example, that we should be shipping uh, over there, right? A couple of weeks ago, General Atomics, in full disclosure, they're one of our sponsors, uh, you know, has said, hey, look, we'll make available demonstrator aircraft, uh, and, you know, if, if the government uh, can, can get them over there. How much of a change would that kind of aerial capability make uh, in this uh, conflict, something that can loiter that long, see that far, and strike that far? It would make a significant difference because these American drones have, uh, have been tried and tested for decades already um, and have been upgraded significantly as well. I think the concern has always been uh, about this weapon falling into the Russian hands. And possibly not just the Russian hands, but also uh, Iranian hands and Chinese hands, even if Chinese and Iranians have gotten uh, information about these drones before. But they could make uh, a big difference, but they could make a big difference if supplied in large enough numbers. Uh, half a dozen or even a dozen of these drones may be impactful, but may not necessarily uh, impact the entire uh, Russian military operation. But a, a much larger number of these drones can impact Russian uh, supply lines, supply chains, logistics, uh, military movements, and everything that the Russians are doing on the ground. So that's why this debate is still ongoing, whether or not to supply this drone to the Ukrainian military. Let me ask you uh, uh, the question of what Russia has learned over the past year as the war enters its uh, second year, right? I mean, there tends to be a focus on all the lessons the West has learned. How do we better prepare? What are the lessons we're drawing, for example, that helps us better deter China? What are the lessons that Russia has drawn from this war? 
Well, they relearned an old lesson of uh, not underestimating their adversary, whatever that adversary may be. Uh, they are probably learning that uh, the international cooperation and uh, institutions like NATO and the European Union are not as weak as the Russians may have imagined. Uh, when the pandemic hit in 2020, Russian um, a political establishment was talking a lot about the emerging multipolarity and the weakening of American-led uh, international political institutions in the face of the pandemic and other challenges. And they thought that Russia, China, India, the BRICS organization, Shanghai Cooperation Organization may be able to sort of rise and supplant some of the other organizations which uh, Russians thought were, uh, were, be were, were still being very influential. This war has proven the importance of NATO. This war has proven that uh, Europe can actually unite. And uh, this war has also proven to the Russians that industrialization, industrial capacity is extremely important in waging a conventional war. And they're feeling it on a daily basis right now as they are also trying to deal with the lack or shortage of certain technologies, up upgrading older technologies, trying to acquire certain technologies uh, from overseas and from their international partners. Uh, Russians have also learned that they have some friends and allies, but those friends and allies can be with them up to a certain point. Uh, but uh, Russians have also learned that they can build additional pathways and uh, additional institutions or supply chains to circumvent the international pressure. But uh, how resilient uh, such pathways are remains to be seen. If the Russian economy did not break last year, it is certainly limping into 2023 right now. And Russian economic outlook is rather uncertain, whether there would be a stagnation, inflation, uh, whether the economic growth would be negative, or even if some segments of the Russian economy would be able to survive long term. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again. Thanks, Vago. And a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval warfare coverage. And joining me now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, in uh, sunny Connecticut. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you guys had a great weekend. We certainly did, Vago. It's always a pleasure to talk. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Uh, a week ago uh, today, uh, President Biden stunned the world with his surprise visit to uh, Kiev that included 10 hours uh, on a train either way, uh, including a lot of American air power massed, uh, our understanding is, in Poland and in Europe uh, as, as a signal for the Russians to maybe uh, not attack the president of the United States uh, on, on his uh, trip. A lot of focus, uh, obviously, on the visit on the first anniversary of the war. You know, almost every program we've had for a little while has been focused on that. Um, and I don't want to belabor it because you and I have talked about it on a weekly basis. And, and Sam certainly discussed it at the top of the show. But what are some of the things that sort of jump out at you uh, after this year as we go into the second year of the conflict? Um, and, and, and really, you know, the, the, the U.S.-led coalition has not really expanded while the coalition of the people who are willing to do business with China and Russia has kind of grown? Well, I'll start, Fago. I mean, you know this. I mean, there was just a torrent of events last week uh, on the one-year anniversary of 
you know, the war had been going on for a while. So it was really Russia's large scale invasion, uh, you know, on an overlay of a war that really had been launched in 2014. Right. You know, one of the things that I wrote last week, I, I just think it was a time to kind of think through how many people got so much wrong really along the entire course of the chain of events that occurred. And I, I made my mistakes too, but I, I think much as uh, all these events talked about, you know, what was important and what this might mean in the future, you kind of have to step back and say, well, boy, how good was our collective track record at figuring this out in 2022? You know, isn't it time to take a pause here and think about, well, what could you do better in 2023 uh, to more accurately forecast what what could potentially happen in this conflict, and we've talked about this a, a lot, you know. But I think the 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 narratives that I found a little maybe counterintuitive at this point in time, or narratives that I think ought to be questioned, are well, the war is just going to go on and on and on and on and on. Wars don't go on and on and on and on and on. There there <clears throat> there is a point right. where one side says, you know. <laughs> Uh, let's go let's start negotiating an end to this and and neither side is going to achieve the the ultimate goal of overthrowing the other government and and you know kind of the same type of conclusion to a war you saw in 2003 in Iraq or in 1975 in South Vietnam that that's not going to happen so and I, I think the other narrative is we keep looking for silver bullets in this war. You know, it was it was anti-tank weapons initially, and then maybe high mores. And now, you know, it's combat aircraft. All this stuff is important, but any one single item isn't going to be the kind of the the the, the crack uh, that's going to open the dam and, and allow uh, a complete and thorough Ukrainian victory. So I think we just need to be careful of that too. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, thinking through 2023, you really have to sort through what are the, what are the, the bad things that can still happen? To your point, you know, and I found it very curious that um, Russia was out exhibiting both at Aero India and at IDEX, uh, Aero India the week before and IDEX last week. So right. you just, they're not as isolated, I think, as uh, people may have concluded, you know, given the really unprecedented sanctions and export controls that were announced. The reports about China, you know, President Biden state that he didn't think uh, China would would actually supply weapons to, to Russia. But there are a lot of things you can do that, you know, doesn't come down to, you know, sending train loads of uh, air defense systems and, and armor vehicles to Russia that are going to help out Russia a lot. So, I, I just think, um, you know, the, the China card, I think, is going to be the most interesting one to watch in 2023, because uh, that really is, you know, if if China sides more openly with Russia, that's really when you are pitting the Chinese in defense industrial base and the Russian defense industrial base and whatever else Russia can get through to its own industrial base against a European and U.S. defense industrial base. And that's a pretty that's a pretty dire competition in my book. Uh, let me ask you how you think this will be reflected in the defense budget, right? I mean, a lot of speculation. March 9 is coming. We, we had heard, uh, you know, it's gonna, the budget will be higher, $30 billion higher than it was last year. Um, now, you know, for many weeks, we've been hearing uh, and increasingly reporting since that uh, it's just going to be bigger than it was um, um, 
you know, we're, you know, and how do you think this war is going to shape it, right? I mean, what's the expectation, both on a top line sense, um, you know, Michael was able, unable to give us sort of a specific number yet that hasn't leaked. Um, yeah. But what's your what's your sense? What's the remember, expectation? What should be just, in it? It's just, you know, I don't I don't have a number. Uh, the number I've used is kind of 825 to 835 for DOD discretionary. Um, it would obviously be a larger number, you know, if you include the the 050 or if you include the the items that are lumped under the 050 defense budget function. Um, but just to be clear, that's for the Department of Defense. Um, I do think, you know, they're going to put more money in for precision guided weapons and munitions, you know, above and beyond what's been in some of the Ukraine supplementals. And then I think we're probably still going to have another Ukraine supplemental for FY23 and probably another, you know, later in FY24 to cover the war costs. Because this isn't, you know, this isn't going away anytime uh, unless there's some dramatic change. But my, my base assumption is, you know, when you start talking about combat aircraft and, and more main battle tanks, you know, these are fairly big ticket items and it's going to cost money uh, as well as just, you know, the replenishment of the stuff that Ukraine has been using in this conflict. Um, I think the more interesting thing, Vago, is, you know, back to the debt ceiling and budget debate, and you kind of see some backpedaling and then some shift in focus. I know probably earlier in the month, um, Representative Calvert on the, you know, he's the chair of the the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee was talking about looking, you know, at cuts to the civilian workforce, uh, you know, to, to find defense efficiencies. And look, I absolutely agree. You can find efficiencies in the Department of Defense, but you better go at them with a scalpel, not a not a kind of debt ceiling budget chainsaw. And I think, you know, at the same time, there's this idea, oh, it's just a bloated civilian bureaucracy. I, I'm sure there are job functions that you could get at, but you, you can't go in and just fire people willy nilly. And, and um, you know, I, I wrote about it, but I think it was... Uh, General Rainey at, at um, Army Future Command, who said basically that something like 88, 85% of his uh, command are civilian, they're civilians. So, right. you know, be careful when you start throwing this stuff around and implying that, oh, the people in uniform are the, should all be protected. It's the civilians we can jettison. Well, who's going to do that work? You know, are you going to contract that out? Right. How much is that going to cost? So, it's just a very peculiar debate right now. Um, and, and I, I wish uh, there, there are answers you, there absolutely has been waste and inefficiency in the department of defense. Um, I still, you know, littoral combat ship, uh, you guys know this, you know, chapter and verse, but, um, the idea that you're going to come up with, well, let's get these cuts together you know, by, by July or August, whenever the debt ceiling um, is, you know, we, we've run out of extraordinary measures. Um, it's not going to happen that fast. And if you try and right. force it that quickly, you're just asking for trouble. Uh, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. And I want to point out, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, General Rainey is going to join uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army, Doug Bush, uh, the acquisition uh, executive at uh, Center for uh, New American Security uh, next week, one of one of uh, the many events. Um, I want to get to that in, in just a second, but very briefly, Byron, uh, we talked about this on yesterday's program a little bit. 
Right. You and I have longtime advocates of companies developing products, bringing it to the customer and the importance of the customer changing how it buys to reward those companies that are willing to take the risk to develop the better mousetrap and, and bring it to you. The, the business model for Anduril, for Palantir, or a lot of these innovative companies is predicated on, I will build you a better mousetrap. Um, at the end of the day, is this war driving you think a change? Do you notice that change? Absolutely. Or is it that no, we're no, just going to do stuff 100%. the way that? I mean, you know, look, I think that's what any war, you know, at scale is going to shake. It's going to shake things up. And I, you know, as you were, you know, that was all rolling off your tongue. I immediately thought of Harris and the Falcon radio and, you know, how there was an urgent need for, um, for tactical communications that was not being met by the Department of Defense through the program of record uh, of the day, the Jitters program. And so Harris, you know, had a, had a solution. And, and so I think anytime there's a war like this, um, it's going to drive the, there'll be international demand. And I think it's got to, it's got to also start getting filtered through um, the way DOD behaves and the way, frankly, that, that, uh, that industry behaves, you know, I'll, I'll say it again. Um, we've talked a lot about share buybacks on this show. Um, I know that, uh, you know, Warren Buffett at his meeting, I think he talked about people who, you know, didn't understand share buybacks were, were illiterates and some other <laughs> moniker that he applied but, but I look at that as, okay, you know, yeah, you've got excess cash. Um, you've had all sorts of choices and other things you can do with it. If that's your default option, fine, uh, buy your stock back. But but that's not a productive use of, of cash flow. It shrinks your share count and it returns cash to shareholders. Sure, but it, you're, not, you're not building something that's going to generate more cash flow in the future. And in an environment like this where... Um, there is urgent need and other companies are stepping up to meet that need. Uh, I think it's really gonna be, it, you know, these massive buybacks could be seen in hindsight to be extremely short-sighted. Indeed, uh, a concern that we've talked about uh, for uh, a very long time indeed. Um, walk us through uh, the big events because it is a very busy uh, week. Yeah, there's a lot going on. You know, Congress is back in session, um, I think, Ukraine is obviously going to be topical. You've got both the House and Senate Armed Services Committee holding hearings on U.S. military support for Ukraine. The House hearing is probably going to be more interesting because it has uh, U.S. DOD officials uh, testifying. Um, you mentioned the CNAS event uh, with, um, with Army acquisition leadership, but then Secretary of the Army Wormuth is also speaking at AEI and CSIS this week. And um, and NDIA is is holding their tactical wheeled vehicle conference in Columbus, Ohio, on the twenty seventh through the first. I'm actually going to be attending that event. Um, right. Brookings is doing something on the Russian suspension of its participation in the New Start um, treaty, which has been obviously topical and interesting. Uh, Chatham House in London is doing an event on is, is Europe ready to face hardships in support of Ukraine? And uh, CNAS is also doing an event on Russian political stability. So um, a lot going on this week, as, as one would expect, particularly when Congress is back in session. And Byron, talk to us a little bit about interest rates, because they're really 
spiking and it's having dramatic impacts. Walk us through. Yeah, and I think what what happened, you know, the latest market reaction was the personal consumption expenditures price index came out on the 24th. It was higher than consensus expected. You know, the Fed is hell bent on beating inflation back down to 2%. So that would mean that they're going to keep on this path to continue raising rates. You know, I I just observe in my Sunday night note that, um, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where you really do have to start being concerned about if if the Fed keeps this fight going for not just months, but maybe two or three years, it's really going to start having an impact on interest outlays. Um, I do note that, you know, if you look at the breakout of debt held by the public, it's around $24 trillion. <clears throat> just under $4 trillion of that is in T-bills. So basically, Treasury instruments with maturities days up to to 52 weeks you know just to put this in context um treasury puts out a kind of a monthly statement about the the composition of the debt but also the average interest rate in that debt and the bills a year ago you know if you looked at this it was like 0.1% it's currently 4.2% now what what gets really interesting is when this starts bleeding into the treasury notes number, that's about 56% of debt outstanding. That's where you're really going to start to get, um, you know, the, if these rates don't start to moderate and inflation is sustained at a higher level and the Fed doesn't back off, you know, you're going to start seeing interest outlay projections that are above what CBO just reported in their latest update. And that's what I worry about for defense. I, I don't worry about that. I shouldn't say I don't worry. I'm I'm I've always been more concerned about the interest rates on federal debt than just the the magnitude of the of the federal debt in its own right. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. You too, Vago. Enjoy. Thank you. That was terrific. Thank you.